President Biden has addressed the nation on the strange flying objects the U.S. military has shot down. He says only the first balloon pierced on the East Coast earlier this month was a Chinese spy balloon. The other three were not spy vehicles and may have been privately owned. Today is Thursday, February 16th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the work of the special grand jury in Georgia that's been looking into claims of election fraud in 2020 is out. While the information's scarce, it gives a preview of what we might expect moving forward. With Southern Arizona as his backdrop, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is visiting the U.S.-Mexico border. I promised them if we won the majority, we'd make sure that we did everything we could to secure this border. That story is ahead, and for the latest Marvel movie, a big title for some small superheroes, Bob Mondello has our review. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. In his first public remarks about the three unknown aerial objects shot down over the weekend, President Biden says the intelligence community believes the objects were most likely benign, commercial or research related. NPR's Tamara Keith reports a process is underway to develop new rules of engagement. President Biden said there isn't any evidence of a sudden increase of objects in the sky. But in the wake of the Chinese spy balloon incident and these three shootdowns, the U.S. needs to adapt its approach. I've directed my team to come back to me with sharper rules for how we will deal with these unidentified objects moving forward, distinguishing, distinguishing between those that are likely to pose safety and security risks that necessitate action and those that do not. But make no mistake, if any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. Biden said he also wants to see updated rules and regulations for launching unmanned aerial objects. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Senator John Fetterman's undergoing treatment in the Washington, D.C. area for clinical depression. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports a Democratic lawmaker from Pennsylvania has experienced a series of health challenges since before his election in the midterms. In a statement, Fetterman's chief of staff said the senator has experienced depression off and on throughout his life, but it only became severe in recent weeks. After an evaluation on Wednesday, doctors recommended inpatient treatment and Fetterman agreed. The freshman senator is still recovering from a stroke he suffered last year and was briefly hospitalized in Washington, D.C. recently after feeling lightheaded. Windsor Johnson reporting police in Michigan found multiple guns and several loaded magazines on the gunman responsible for this week's mass shooting at Michigan State University. The gunman killed three students and wounded five others before later taking his own life. Michelle Jokish-Polo from member station WKAR reports that guns used in the shooting were purchased legally but not registered. At a press conference after FBI Special Agent Jim Taraska said 43-year-old Anthony McRae acted alone. Fana McRae were two handguns, the one he shot himself with and another in his backpack that he was carrying. He also had a loaded uh, magazine that was full to capacity in his left breast pocket. Uh, in the backpack, he had eight loaded magazines of 9mm ammunition. Taraska said investigators also found a note on McRae where he detailed plans to shoot up a grocery store warehouse where he previously worked, a church, and a school district in New Jersey, where he once lived. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Jokishpolo. More than 39,000 people are confirmed dead now since the initial earthquake struck Turkey and Syria. But even though it's been 10 days, 
Search teams are still locating survivors. They include a 17-year-old girl rescued this morning near the epicenter of the quake in Turkey. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. This is a month for weather records in Boston. The thermometer hit 62 degrees at Logan Airport today. That breaks the old record high of 60 for this date, set in 1910. Bill Simpson with the National Weather Service office in Norton says 62 degrees is a lot warmer than what it usually is right now. Normal high is 39, so that's a pretty good jump. And normal low is 25, so by Saturday morning we'll actually be in the low 20s, so it'll be a bit of a shock from this, today's warm temperatures. Speaking of warm temperatures, Providence hit 71 degrees today. That shattered its previous high temperature record for the day by 11 degrees. Earlier this month, low temperature records for the day were broken in Boston, where it dropped to 10 degrees below zero. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is moving forward with her plan to create more affordable housing. Today, the mayor announced the creation of 800 income-restricted homes in eight neighborhoods. Part of the plan calls for making the use of old buildings. Wu spoke in front of a former Catholic church in Jamaica Plain that will be developed into 55 affordable units. Treasured community spaces maintained and even expanded in the uses that match the needs of our communities today. Wu announced $67 million in funding for specific projects across the city. Governor Maura Healey's administration is announcing a new $50 million grant program to reduce emissions coming from low- and moderate-income housing. The money will be used for everything from replacing fossil heating systems with air or ground source heat pumps to installing rooftop solar panels. The state hopes the program will also improve indoor air quality without contributing to the rising cost of housing. UMass Amherst trustees today unanimously selected Javier Reyes to lead the Amherst campus starting in June. Reyes was born and raised in Mexico. He becomes the first Hispanic to lead Massachusetts' flagship university. He's been serving as interim chancellor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Reyes will succeed Kumbal Sabaswamy, who is retiring. And the city of Boston is looking for black male high school students who want to organize their communities for change. Applications are now being accepted for the Young Black Leaders Boston Cohort. 20 students will be selected for an eight-week course that will help them learn how to be more civilly engaged in order to make a positive impact. 60 degrees now in Boston. Clouds should stick around tonight, so should the mild temperatures. Cloudy skies overnight. Windy, too, dipping to about 48. Tomorrow, damp and windy could reach the low 60s, but falling to the 40s over the weekend. Again, 60 now in Boston at 4.07. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine asked the White House for more direct federal support in the response to the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, a disaster that has been a constant worry for residents in the area for nearly two weeks now. Since the accident has happened, I haven't been sleeping more than a few hours each night because I'm constantly trying to find information. That is Diane Elzer, who lives and works in East Palestine. She and the rest of the town had to evacuate after a train carrying chemicals derailed on February 3rd. 
One of the chemicals on board, vinyl chloride, posed a risk of exploding. So emergency management crews intentionally burned them off. That created a massive plume of dark smoke all over the town, which state officials did admit could be hazardous if inhaled. Days later, residents were allowed to go back home as the Environmental Protection Agency monitored air quality. Earlier this week, the EPA said that none of the homes they screen had vinyl chloride or hydrogen chloride in the air. And the EPA said that as of today, there were no water quality concerns. But many have still been worried about safety. Elzer says she's concerned about longer-term effects of this chemical in the air and in local waters. Aside from contractors going around testing air quality and lots of trucks at our local creeks doing all sorts of remediation work, it almost seems back to normal. Maybe it's like a sword of Damocles. You don't know when it's going to drop. You don't know what's going to happen. Residents of East Palestine have reported smelling a strong odor and some symptoms like red eyes, nausea, and headaches. Here's Maggie Guglielmo, a local small business owner. I now wear an N95 mask when I go in, but I can still smell the stuff. And I also wear goggles, but it's still irritating my eyes. Other people in this rural town, right by the Pennsylvania border, have also reported dead fish in the creeks. But despite these concerns, some experts say burning the chemical was the right thing to do. Here's Bill Dieslin, board chair for the Institute of Hazardous Materials Management. I think that a fire is the lesser of the two evils. From what I'm reading from the emergency response guide and from safety data sheets, the emergency responders were following the instructions that are available to them in an emergency. Well, let's bring in Stan Myberg to help us understand more about the situation. He's the executive director of the Center for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability at Wake Forest University. He also worked for the EPA for 39 years, including as the acting deputy director. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. So I know that you've been watching the EPA response and the response from the rail company that was transporting these chemicals. You've been watching from afar, just like most of us. And given all of the concerns reported by these residents and some other environmental experts, I am wondering, is there anything about the response that concerns you? Well, first, I just want to express my empathy for the people involved in this. It's scary. It's unknown. There are a lot of questions, and it can seem hard in the middle of an incident like this to get accurate information. So you have to start from that standpoint. (laughs) Well, the incident, of course, gives tremendous cause for concern about rail transportation. But as far as the response is concerned, EPA appears to have used every monitoring technology available to it, high-tech airplanes, mobile monitors, stationary monitors, to get data. It's very understandable, though, how that's not necessarily reassuring to the public. It Mm -hmm. reports information in terms of chemicals and concentrations, which is important for risk management, but it doesn't necessarily address anxiety or the cases of things you can smell. Well, let's talk more about that because, yeah, even though the images of that smoke have looked really alarming, as officials have said, they followed specific emergency response guidelines about how to handle this chemical, which was through a controlled burn. Like we mentioned, the alternative could have been an explosion. So, Do you think that the messaging around the response has been clear enough to the public in order to alleviate any concerns? 
It's hard to say for the public because my own background is such that I kind of hear the messages from right. different years. Yeah. I have no reason to believe that the actions were anything other than appropriate. The messaging is hard to do when you're dealing with something that is unknown to the public, very much feared, and can be seen as catastrophic. Why do you think it has been so hard for residents to to trust the air quality safety, even though EPA officials are saying, look, it's okay, they are offering assurances? If you listen to EPA and incident management responses, you will hear that they don't usually use the word safe. In fact, generally in incident responses, people stay away from that word. That the general guidance is when you are talking about risks, you tell people first what you know, Then you tell them what you don't know and are doing to try to find out. For example, you're trying to get more data, which can take some time to report out and not just be in real time. Basically, the best advice you can give for a person who is concerned about their health, since EPA doesn't know you, is that you consult with your personal health care provider or that responders make available public health assistance to people who want to know about themselves, not just in general. So you're telling me that residents should not be listening to what EPA officials are saying about the air quality, but should be talking to their doctors? No, I'm not saying that at all. What, in fact, I'm saying is that the information about air quality is important information. But for you, if you are concerned about your health, you really should be talking to your personal health care provider because they will know you better than anyone else does. When you were with the EPA, you were involved in the response to another train derailment involving hazardous chemicals, I understand. What kinds of lessons did you learn in that incident that you think would be helpful for people in and around East Palestine to understand? That's an excellent question. The incident you're referring to was in Graniteville, South Carolina in 2005, a very tragic incident involving a Norfolk Southern train. Uh, Ten people were killed in the release of chlorine gas from a series of cars. And what I took away from that is that there are three things that you really have to pay attention to in preventing incidents like this. One deals with Mm -hmm. labor and making sure there's adequate staffing to make sure the railroads can know what their risks are. The second is the equipment itself and the safety and security of rail cars used to transport hazardous materials, because this happens all over the country all the time. Mm -hmm. And similarly with the rails themselves. And finally, what routes are most appropriate for transporting these materials, which are an element of our current commercial society? So all of those things have to be paid attention to, to minimize the consequences of accidents when they happen. So as the response to this accident continues, what specifically will you be watching for? Well, there are a couple of things. One is I will be specifically watching for continued monitoring, not because I think there's going to be much new information from it, but it's important to do that to reassure people that, in fact, you're continuing to watch. Secondly, there'll be continued sampling, especially water sampling and groundwater sampling, to see if there is any long-term contamination in groundwater or soils around the site of the accident. So those are two things that I would watch for. Stan Myberg, Executive Director of the Center for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability at Wake Forest University. Thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Now to news from overseas and off-planet. Russian space managers have delayed sending a replacement Soyuz capsule to the International Space Station after a second spacecraft docked at the ISS sprung a leak. The launch, scheduled for Sunday, is now on hold. 
Engineers say the crew is not in danger, but as Brendan Byrne of member station WMFE reports, it all raises questions about how three of the station's crew members will get home. 250 miles above Earth, there are currently seven people on the International Space Station, where operations are continuing. That's despite coolant leaks on two docked vehicles, a Progress supply craft that launched to the station in October and a Soyuz spacecraft that transported two Russian cosmonauts and a U.S. astronaut to the station in September. When they'll return now is unclear, says space industry analyst Laura Forsick. There is a little bit of uncertainty. There was a, uh, a launch that has been postponed. It was supposed to be in a few days for a replacement capsule to return the crew back to the Earth. The uncertainty began in December when the Soyuz spacecraft spewed liquid coolant into space. The Russian space agency Roscosmos concluded the first leak was caused by a micrometeoroid impact. After a review, NASA and Roscosmos said the damaged spacecraft was unsafe for the crew to use to return home. The plan to launch an empty capsule to use as a return vehicle is now on hold after the other Russian spacecraft sprung a leak on Saturday. Here's former NASA astronaut Terry Vertz. Spaceships are having similar malfunctions, and that's very concerning, and it's a really important malfunction. The capsule's coolant system is responsible for lowering the temperature inside during the fiery reentry through Earth's atmosphere. Vertz, who flew to the station on a Soyuz spacecraft in 2014, says the issues with the two spacecraft so close together leads him to believe the issue is not a micrometeoroid strike like first thought. That's probably no coincidence, and that would lead me to think that it's probably some type of manufacturing defect or something wrong with the spaceship itself. Analysts say Russia's supply chain has been stretched thin due to the war in Ukraine. Russian engineers are reviewing data ahead of the launch of the empty spacecraft, a mission dubbed MS-23, which was scheduled to lift off this week. Space Policy Online editor Marcia Smith says NASA has confidence in its Russian counterparts to make the right decision. So I think we just need to wait and see when NASA and Roscosmos feel confident that Soyuz MS-23 does not have any design or manufacturing defects and, in fact, will be safe to bring back the Soyuz MS-22 crew. Typically, station crew members serve six-month rotations. If there is a delay launching the empty capsule, the three who are stranded could stay on the station up to a year. NASA says they're prepared for an extended mission should it be necessary and will enjoy their extra time on the orbiting lab as it circles the Earth. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And still ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is doing a lot of talking, even though he's been charged with orchestrating one of the largest financial frauds in history. Lawyers say such talk is risky business. That story is coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College, where an executive coaching certificate can boost your career and prepare you to coach tomorrow's leaders. Apply now for fall. WilliamJames.edu. Wall Street gave up territory today. The Dow lost one and a quarter percent, 431 points. It ended the day at 33,697. S&P sank for or sank about one and four tenths percent to wrap up at 4090. The Nasdaq dropped more than one and three quarters percent to finish the session at 11,856. 
Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. New federal securities filings show Cambridge-based Biogen has cut 885 jobs since it announced the cost-cutting plan last year. The Boston Business Journal reports about 470 of those cuts were in Massachusetts. Biogen started tightening its budget after the release of its controversial Alzheimer's disease drug, Aduhelm. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. 60 degrees now in the Boston area. Could be drizzly tonight. Not too cold, about 48 degrees again, same as last night. Tomorrow, a rainy end to the work week. Showers, light rain, some strong winds around. Temperatures could reach the upper 50s tomorrow. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. In the days since a Chinese spy balloon and three unidentified aerial objects were shot down by U.S. fighter jets, there have been a lot of questions. Today, President Biden made his first extensive comments on this unusual chapter in White House history. He said he has no regrets about shooting down the Chinese spy balloon at the beginning of the month. But as far as the other objects go, he said better rules are needed to regulate when things go up and when the military should shoot them down. NPR politics reporter Deepa Shivaram was watching the president's remarks and joins us now. Hey, Deepa. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what goes up doesn't necessarily come down, I guess. <laughs> what else did we hear from the president today? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have been waiting to hear directly from the president about those three unidentified objects. You'll remember that were shot down on Friday, then one Saturday, and then another one on Sunday. And the thing is, we still don't have a lot of information. Biden said that they still don't know what exactly those objects are. But right now, nothing suggests that they're part of China's spy balloon program like that first balloon that was found and shot down earlier this month. Biden said that these three objects were most likely tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions that are studying weather or conducting other kinds of scientific research. And because there are all kinds of objects floating around at high altitudes for these purposes, Biden said he's directed his team to recommend, quote, sharper rules for how to handle these unidentified objects, essentially in order to differentiate between the ones that pose a threat and ones that are basically weather balloons. Going forward, these parameters will guide what actions we'll take while responding to unmanned and unidentified aerial objects. We're going to keep adapting them as the challenges evolve, if it evolves. Well, did President Biden give any indication of what those parameters, those rules will look like? Yeah, he said those new guidelines would remain classified and he would share them with Congress when they're completed. So we won't know exactly what those new rules are, but we do know that Biden's team will establish an inventory of sorts for how many objects are actually up there, who's allowed to launch them, and on the international level, working to create some kind of global norm on what we can fly in this airspace to begin with. Huh. Well, I do want to ask because, you know, the U.S. shot down those three unidentified objects a lot more quickly than it shot down the Chinese 
Chinese spy balloon, which was the thing that started all of this. And there's been criticism from Republicans that the president took too long to act on that first incident. Did Biden respond to any of that? He did. And he defended his decision to wait until the spy balloon wasn't going to harm any civilians once it was shot down. And he also said that the government protected any sensitive sites that the balloon was going to fly over before they shot it down. And Biden said shooting it down sent a clear message that violating U.S. sovereignty is unacceptable. In the meantime, Biden also said that he sanctioned six firms involved in China's balloon program. And those restrictions mean that they're denied access to any U.S. technology. Okay, so Biden says the U.S. sent a clear message to China, but we know that China has called shooting down the balloon an overreaction, right? So how concerned is the president about this increased tension with China because of all this? Yeah, Biden said this whole incident has underscored the importance of open lines of communication between officials in the U.S. and China. And he did say he expects to be speaking with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He didn't say exactly when that would be, though. But Biden and Vice President Harris have both recently said that they don't think this incident has hurt relations with China. And Biden echoed that today. He said he's not looking for any conflict with China, but he makes no apologies for shooting down the spy balloon. In the last two weeks, though, I've got to tell you, there hasn't been a lot of communication between top U.S. and Chinese officials. Yeah. So that open line that Biden wants hasn't really come to fruition. That is NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Thank you so much, Deepa. Thank you. The final season of Star Trek Picard on Paramount Plus features a landmark reunion. It unites key characters from the 1980s era series Star Trek The Next Generation. NPR TV critic Eric Deggan says tapping deeper into the show's legacy brings excellent results. Star Trek Picard tells you right away that a big part of its story in the third season will show you new sides to old characters. By taking Dr. Beverly Crusher, the caring ship's doctor from Star Trek The Next Generation series, and putting her in a gunfight. Okay, Trek nerds, it's technically a phaser fight. And after taking a serious wound, Crusher sends a message to the only person she can trust. Her former captain, Jean-Luc Picard, played by Patrick Stewart. I'm encoding this transmission with coordinates. Beverly. And Jean-Luc, no Starfleet. Trust no one. Turns out Dr. Crusher, played by Gates McFadden, is fleeing a big bad villain that will force Picard to reunite much of his old crew from the Next Generation series. That's something Trek fans have been pining for since Paramount Plus first debuted this series based on Stewart's character three years ago. But even in the first few minutes of the first episode, Picard himself declares his history doesn't matter. I am not a man who needs a legacy. I want a new adventure. What Picard gets is a new adventure rooted in his legacy. The series does a masterful job reintroducing us to these beloved characters, with more than 20 years since some of them have seen each other. Picard is particularly angry with Dr. Crusher, who cut off contact after ending their romance, assuming he was too addicted to space adventure to settle down. I didn't know I would never see you again, that I would wonder for years what it was that I had done. <laughs> Jean-Luc, don't tell me you would have walked away. Beverly, you made the choice for me. You don't get to condemn people before the fact. 
Those who've watched the first two seasons of Picard know this is a constant theme. Picard as a lion in winter, struggling to save the galaxy while facing the consequences of his life's decisions. But those previous seasons didn't fully feature the next generation characters that Picard served with over seven seasons of television and four films. So it never really felt like he faced the most important parts of his past until now. Eventually, Picard turns to his trusty former second-in-command, William Riker, played by Jonathan Frakes, and their chemistry is wonderful, leavened a little bit by advancing age, as Riker asks about Picard's trembling hands when they're about to charge onto a strange ship, phasers at the ready. From fear or the thought of seeing Beverly? Both. Terrific. Your hands are stiff. My knees are killing me. So long as we don't have to move or shoot, we should be fine. Ready? As ever. Paramount Plus debuted the first of its new Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, in 2017, when the streamer was called CBS All Access. At first, Picard and Discovery worked hard to develop their own voices and characters. But the success of last year's Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which modernized the Adventure of the Week vibe from the original Star Trek in the 1960s, proves that it's time for these programs to lean into their legacy. Star Trek Picard does exactly that, weaving an exciting new adventure for characters fans have loved for decades. I'm Eric Deggins. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The thermometer hit 62 degrees at Logan Airport today. That breaks an old record high in the area of 60 degrees for this date. That was set in 1910. Usually is about 39 degrees this time of year. Providence was nearly summer-like today. 71 degrees, 11 degrees higher than the old record. No record for Worcester, though. It topped out at 58 degrees, 4 degrees short of the record. Overnight tonight, temperatures in the upper 40s. Showers, some patchy fog around. Still damp for tomorrow and seasonably mild once again, rising to just below 60, a strong wind around tomorrow. Skies should clear for Saturday and Sunday, highs only about 40 for Saturday, the upper 40s for Sunday, and right now it's looking like a cloudy day on the holiday Monday, about 53 degrees tops. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, I don't know about you, but I need funny to help me get through hard times. And it has been an unfunny week, from toxic spills to spies in the skies. And honestly, life's been unfunny for a while. Our two resident comedians help us figure out how to grapple with what's real and still find a way to laugh. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden says there's no evidence of a sudden increase of objects in the sky, but in the wake of the Chinese spy balloon incident and three shootdowns last week by the U.S. military of unidentified flying objects, 
Biden says the U.S. needs to adapt its approach to the situation. President Biden says he's directing his administration to develop sharper rules about how to deal with unidentified objects moving forward. I'll be sharing with Congress these classified policy parameters when they are completed and uh, they'll remain classified so we don't give our roadmap to our enemies to try to evade our defenses. Lawmakers from both parties have been demanding answers about what the administration knew about the Chinese spy balloon and the decision to shoot down the three additional aerial objects. Biden says those structures were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Ukrainian officials say they shot down six Russian balloons over the city of Kyiv. We get more on that story from NPR's Yulian Haida. President Biden says he's... This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. As expected, the NHL Players Association today named Marty Walsh as his new executive director. The U.S. Labor Secretary will leave his post next month. Walsh says he will use his labor and political experience as he advocates on the players' behalf. The former Boston mayor launched his political career after he was a laborers' union local president. South Boston political leaders are opposing the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority's plan to lease three parcels of land for 99 years. The Boston Convention and Exhibition Center says it took the nearby waterfront property by eminent domain to expand the hospitality industry. The lawmakers, including State Senator Nick Collins, are questioning the process the authority is using to solicit bids to develop that area. A system to prevent drivers from getting onto the wrong side of the highway could be expanded sooner than expected. The detection system being installed this week was supposed to be part of a multi-year pilot program. But Massachusetts Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says they will expand the system across the state to alert drivers when they're going the wrong way. You see flashing LEDs, you see uh, signs that light up, you hear an audible alarm on some of these. And effectively what that does is it gives you an opportunity to, to hit the brakes, realize you've gone the wrong direction, and turn around. Since 2014, more than 2,000 cases of people driving the wrong way on Massachusetts highways have been reported, and there have been 30 fatal wrongway crashes. The city of Boston is planning to spend $67 million to build more than 800 affordable housing units. The projects will be in eight neighborhoods, including Jamaica Plain, Alston, and Chinatown. Jamaica Plain City Councilor Kendra Lara says this is just the beginning. This is getting us one step closer to really building a city of Boston that is for all of us. And it won't be the last time that we're going to be celebrating more affordable housing, more creative performance space, and more creative solutions to the housing crisis that we see ourselves in today. Mayor Michelle Wu says the project meets the green development and zero building emissions goals. Boston's Pride Parade will return in June. Today, the organizers of Boston Pride for the People announced the annual event will return after it was canceled during the pandemic. Boston Pride had been the original event organizers, but that group dissolved after it was criticized for not being inclusive after the Minnesota police killing of George Floyd in 2020. The new group promises to focus on celebrating the diversity and full cultural range of the LGBTQ plus community. And scientists at the New England Aquarium are pushing for broader measures to protect the critically endangered North Atlantic right whale following the recent death of one of the mammals. A 20-year-old male was found dead off the Virginia coast last weekend. 
A necropsy concluded the whale died of blunt force trauma that was consistent with a vessel strike. The New England Aquarium scientists want to extend speed restrictions for ships and boats in the right whale's habitat. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic, performing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with conductor Benjamin Zander at Symphony Hall, February 24th, bostonphil.org. Cloudy skies tonight in the upper 40s for a low, some showers, patchy fog. Still damp tomorrow, temperatures rising to just below 60. Lots of clouds during the day and a strong wind, too. Skies should clear out for Saturday and Sunday. Highs only about 40 for Saturday, the upper 40s for Sunday. And it looks right now as if President's Day on Monday should be kind of mild, 53 degrees, but clouds around as well. This is WBUR. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. We've been waiting to hear from a special grand jury that investigated former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election result in Georgia. Today, sections of the special grand jury's report were made public. But most of the jurors' findings remain secret for now, including their top-line recommendations on criminal charges. Sam Greenglass of WABE in Atlanta is covering this story. Hi, Sam. Hey, Ari. What exactly was the special grand jury tasked with doing? So the event that really set this whole thing in motion was a call Trump made to Georgia's secretary of state after the last presidential election. Uh, Trump asked him to find the number of votes he needed to win here. And the special grand jury was convened to look into whether crimes had been committed. Uh, The investigation expanded to look at a fake elector scheme and efforts to spread false conspiracy theories that uh, the election was somehow rigged. The special grand jury has wrapped up their work and delivered this final report to Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. So sections of the report were released today. Tell us what they showed. There is a bit of a delay on the line. We'll wait for your answer. Well, not a whole lot, actually. We only got to see five pretty sparse pages of this document. A judge ruled earlier this week that a lot of the report has to stay under wraps. That's in fairness, he said, to any potential future defendants. Uh, I asked Georgia State University law professor Anthony Christ what jumped out to him, and he pointed to the jurors unanimously finding no widespread election fraud happened in 2020. If Fonnie Willis is going to bring charges, it's going to be essential to show that people had an intent to undo something which they knew to be legitimate and lawful. And so if that is part of this this body of evidence that's unearthed, that the election was never in doubt, that makes that case easier to bring. 
The report also confirmed that the jurors did take votes on criminal charges, but what they recommended exactly, we just don't know. Uh, Trump posted on True Social that this report exonerates him, but this brief bit of report that we saw today doesn't clear anyone, nor does it mention Trump or really any names at all. So we don't know whether the special grand jury recommended any criminal charges for anyone, but we do know about one specific recommendation from the jury. Tell us about it. The jurors wrote that they are concerned that some witnesses lied under oath, and they recommended the district attorney indict those people for perjury. Now, we don't know who these witnesses are. Remember, the special grand jury interviewed 75 of them, including some of Trump's top allies, like lawyer Rudy Giuliani, also some of the biggest power players in Georgia, including Governor Brian Kemp. This process started more than a year ago, so what happens next? Well, whatever the special grand jury recommended, they don't have the power to indict. That is up to District Attorney Fonnie Willis to decide whether to pursue criminal charges and then ask a regular grand jury to approve them. Three weeks ago, Willis said decisions were imminent. We have not really heard anything from her since then. But just like the special grand jury that wrote this final report, the grand jury that would greenlight any charges, they also meet in secret. Bottom line, Ari, not much new here, but this is one of the first real glimpses we have gotten at how this investigation has unfolded behind closed doors. And no matter what happens next, it is still a key moment in this push to understand what happened in those days and weeks after the 2020 election. Thank you for your reporting. That is WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is leading a congressional delegation to southern Arizona. The new speaker wants to highlight concerns along the U.S.-Mexico border. Several House Republican freshmen joined McCarthy on this trip. He said that managing the border was a serious priority for Republicans when they won control of the House in November. We've watched after the Biden administration took office, changing the policies, creating a real challenge for our border agents. I promised them if we won the majority, we'd make sure that we did everything we could to secure this border. But critics say today's visit is nothing more than a photo op. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us from Arizona. Hey, Claudia. Hey there. So how is McCarthy's trip as speaker different from his previous trips to the border? I mean, is it? Yes, there's a few things. First, a senior Republican aide told me they're highlighting a different section of the 2,000-mile border because McCarthy has visited different sections of the border, but in Texas. He did this three previous times as Republican. Republican leader since 2021. So they want to show how expansive these problems are by showcasing Arizona as the backdrop this time. Also, he's going to be traveling there with four House Republican freshmen. That same senior aide told me this is part of the speaker's effort to showcase the next generation of lawmakers who could take the reins on related border security legislation. And this includes Arizona Representative Juan Siscomani. He actually is the first Mexican immigrant elected to Congress from Arizona. Mm. And he also gave the Spanish language rebuttal recently to President Biden's State of the Union address. Okay, so 
What have Democrats been saying so far about this trip? Yes. Yeah, so one Democrat, Arizona Democratic Representative Raul Grijalva, he represents most of Arizona along the southern border and much of the region where this trip is taking place today. He said he had his own trip planned for a port of entry. He's going to meet with a mayor in a border community to talk about new improvements there as part of the 2021 bipartisan infrastructure law. And while Grijalva concedes the border is facing challenges and there's crisis points, he argues these GOP trips will not help. They're not here to talk about solutions at all. They're here to do theater and then uh, say that they came to the border, took a photo op and moved on. But I would hope that there would be some seriousness about what are some solutions to this. And I also talked to one immigration advocate. This is Douglas Rivlin with a group called America's Voice. He raised concerns about the Republican rhetoric as well. This is sort of going to become, I think, infrastructure week for McCarthy in that they talk about it a lot, but they don't actually do anything about it because they don't have consensus within the Republican Party on what they should do. His group argues that Republicans have failed to address border issues legislatively, that they have spread disinformation, and they're using these visits as no more than photo ops. Hmm. Well, I understand that House Republicans are going to be moving more and more hearings outside of Washington. What is that about? Right. Yesterday, subpanels for the House Oversight and House Energy and Commerce Committees held a joint hearing in a border community near McAllen, Texas. This is part of a larger theme to try and highlight how these issues are affecting border communities and the rest of the country. And also, a week from today, Chairman Jim Jordan, the Republican from Ohio, he will lead the House Judiciary Committee field hearing in Yuma, Arizona. That's about 200 miles west of where we are today to highlight strains on a local hospital and take in a border visit there as well. And so we expect to see more of these in the future, but we should note this is largely just with Republican participation. So far, Democrats have declined to take part. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Sam Bankman-Fried is accused of orchestrating one of the largest financial frauds in history, and he won't shut up. As he awaits trial, the disgraced founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX is telling his version of what led to the company's collapse to anyone who will listen. As NPR's David Gura reports, that's unusual and risky. Sam Bankman-Fried is defending himself in the court of public opinion months before his case goes to trial. And this is not what defendants normally do, according to Rebecca Mermelstein. She's a defense attorney at the law firm O'Melveny. I think every white-collar lawyer you could ask would say, shut up, right? Keep your mouth shut and let us do the talking. But Bankman-Fried has been talking since his crypto empire crumbled, posting tweets and writing email newsletters. He's been doing interviews at his parents' place in California where he's under house arrest. And Bankman-Fried's defense has been that he didn't know customer funds were being misused, claiming he, quote, didn't try to commit fraud on anyone. Bankman-Fried told George Stephanopoulos of ABC News he made mistakes, but he's not a bad guy. A lot of people look at you and see Bernie Madoff. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's who I am at, at all. 
As Bankman-Fried built FTX into a multi-billion dollar company, he became one of the most recognizable figures in crypto. Wearing shorts and t-shirts with unkempt hair, Bankman-Fried spent a lot of time with lawmakers, regulators, and reporters. He was active on social media. Mermelstein says that when powerful people become defendants, it's to their benefit to lay low. It's really challenging to, to represent someone who doesn't want to take your advice or wants to speak despite being advised not to do so. Bankman-Fried's lawyer and spokesman declined NPR's request for interviews. Each quotation and tweet from Bankman-Fried is a gift to prosecutors who can use that material in court. And Mermelstein believes there's at least one exchange that may have gotten Bankman-Fried into trouble already. A few weeks before he was arrested, he was interviewed by a crypto vlogger. And Bankman-Fried told her he'd steered political contributions to candidates in a way that's hard to track. All my Republican donations were dark. And the reason was not for regulatory reason. It's because reporters freak the out if you donate to a Republican. Now, based on public information, it's not clear if Bankman-Fried broke any rules by the way he made those donations. Anonymous so-called dark money contributions are not necessarily unlawful. But in an eight-count indictment, one of the charges is conspiracy to commit campaign finance violations. And that charge alone carries a penalty of up to five years in prison. Former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan who says she understands Bankman-Fried's temptation to talk. She's seen it before. If I could just talk to you long enough, I can explain it all away and I can tell you that what I was doing was perfectly legitimate. And maybe he believes that to be true. But this strategy has backfired time and time again. And crisis communication specialists also struggle to find any upside to what Bankman-Fried is doing. Anthony D'Angelo, who spent most of his career in public relations, now teaches PR at Syracuse. And he says the image Bankman-Fried cultivated as a 20-something CEO isn't playing well now. Unorthodox is okay. Losing $8 billion among people is not. And whatever charm your cargo shorts and frizzy hair may give you an advantage in in other forms, it's not going to help here. Hundreds of thousands of FTX customers are trying to get their money back, and the penalties Bankman-Fried faces are serious. If a jury finds him guilty, he could spend the rest of his life in prison. Bankman-Fried's trial is scheduled to start in October, eight months from now. And in a recent interview, he complained of having too much downtime. That's a comment sure to make his lawyers sweat. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking sports, Joe Mazzula is now officially the head of the Boston Celtics, according to the team today. Mazzula has been interim coach since the start of the season after the Celts parted ways with former coach Ime Odoka. Celtics have the best record in the league under Mazzula. He becomes the 19th head coach in Celtics franchise history. Bruins visit the Nashville Predators tonight at 8 p.m. And if you're longing for baseball... The Red Sox say they'll put single-game tickets on sale one week from today. They'll be for games from mid-June to almost the end of July. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org. The clouds from today should linger, and so should the mild temperatures. Tonight, cloudy skies, windy, dipping just as far as 48. Tomorrow, damp and windy. Highs could reach the low 60s or upper 50s, falling to the 40s, though, over the weekend. Still pretty nice. Sunshine on Saturday and Sunday, clouds and sunshine both. 60 degrees now in Boston.
WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. And Davis Malm, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The United Nations is asking donor countries for a billion dollars to help Turkey in its recovery from last week's earthquakes. The U.N. is also asking for money to help neighboring Syria, which is already suffering from a decade of civil war. Help there is needed in both government-controlled areas and rebel-held areas with limited access. All this, plus other global crises, have amplified another issue. NPR's Aya Batrawi reports from Dubai, where aid workers are trying to prevent donor fatigue. Men in suits and women in designer heels sip espressos and nibble on an array of bite-sized petit four desserts. It's the World Government Summit in Dubai, an annual gathering that draws political and business leaders and intellectuals. And it's where aid workers connect with those in charge of big budgets. I flew out of here four days ago with uh, 37 tons of medical and surgical equipment on a cargo flight into Aleppo. And I'm back here now through uh, Damascus. Dr. Mark Ryan is executive director of the World Health Organization's Emergencies Program. He says the WHO's been supporting Syria with supplies like trauma and amputation equipment, IV fluids, and surgical tools that medics need to treat people injured by the earthquakes. The needs of people in Syria were immense even before this calamity. A devastating civil war there has ravaged the country for over a decade. It's difficult after a week because people see the images and people become sort of numb to these images. But the reality is that we have to deal with the aftermath of this crisis, which is going to mean months and months of work to help those who've been injured, people with amputations, people with psychological stress, ruined hospitals, collapsed schools. I mean, this is the hard part. Assistance from around the world is pouring in. Both countries will need huge support, but Turkey is better stocked. The WHO estimates that 25 million people across Syria have been impacted. Hundreds of thousands are now homeless. The outpouring of grief and the outpouring of emotion and the outpouring of support is fantastic in the beginning of an emergency, and we're really grateful for that. The problem now is sustaining that, sustaining that effort. The United Nations launched an appeal for nearly $400 million to provide life-saving relief for millions of Syrians. The UN says that covers a period of just three months. It comes as humanitarian organizations have been plagued for years by budget shortfalls and unmet appeals for Syria. The UN Children's Fund had an appeal annually for Syria of $328 million. Not even half of that was being met. Millions of people in rebel-held northwest Syria were dependent on UN aid before the earthquake. So Syria uh, has lost the attention of the world Uh, as many other contexts and underfunded uh, crises. 
especially when all the attention went to the war in Ukraine and the humanitarian response there, which is totally legitimate. And there's so much people can do. That's Carla Mardini, also at the conference. She oversees UNICEF's private fundraising and partnerships. She says UNICEF is working to help reunite unaccompanied kids with relatives. It's providing hygiene kits, sanitation services, and drinking water to avert diseases like cholera, which is already present in northwest Syria. We know the needs are immense across the board, uh, but it's essential for um, their support to reach us as quickly as possible so that we can bring the aid where it's needed most. The International Committee of the Red Cross's Vice President, Gilles Corbinier, says he's hopeful. Uh, what we have seen is, is really outstanding is the generosity of people. Uh, we have seen this last year uh, in response to those who lost everything because of the war in Ukraine. I think we see it again now. Aid workers say the support is critical now and will be long into the future. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. The diminutive superheroes Ant-Man and the Wasp returned to theaters today in Quantum Mania. For those not keeping track, this is the 31st Marvel movie and the start of the middle section of Marvel's multiverse saga. Critic Bob Mondello says, more interestingly, it's the start of a new villain. Scott Lang, otherwise known as Ant-Man, is bopping down a San Francisco street as the movie gets started, musing on his great good fortune. I used to ask myself a lot of questions. Scott, you're at X-Con. How are you an Avenger? That doesn't make sense. But everywhere I go, people tell me the same thing. Thank you, Spider-Man! This is pleasantly self-deprecating, but also gets at something that's been bothering the insect-oriented contingent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Nobody takes their guy seriously. This time, though, Lang and his family are kicking off a whole new storyline set in a place they spent the last film getting Mom back from. You know how dangerous the quantum realm is. We all do, Mom. Nobody's going to the quantum realm. That's why we made this. Your daughter built a subatomic Hubble telescope in a basement. Mom is proud until she realizes the telescope operates more like radar, bouncing signals and reading results. Wait, wait a minute. You're sending a signal down to the quantum realm. Turn it off. Now. Too late. The whole family gets sucked in and small, as in subatomic, is about to get big as an extravagant. Turns out mom forgot to mention to Lang and family that she'd been interacting with a whole populated world in the quantum realm, multiple civilizations lorded over by a guy who tends to blast first and ask questions later. Lang, meet Kang. You're an Avenger. Have I killed you before? <laughs> what? They all blur together after a while. You're not the one with the hammer. That's Thor. We get confused a lot. Similar body types. Who are you? He is evidently the baddest of the bad, and will be for a few more films, judging from the upcoming title Avengers the Kang Dynasty. Thanos only wanted to destroy half the universe. Kang appears interested in exactly doubling that carnage. He will bring me what I need, or everything you call life will end. Kang is played charismatically by Jonathan Majors, who's having quite a year. He just wowed Sundance audiences as a troubled bodybuilder. He'll soon be a troubled boxer in Creed III, and here he's a troubled supervillain. I will take my revenge on those who banished me. 
and I will burn them out of time. Director Peyton Reed has surrounded him and Paul Rudd's Ant-Man family unit with lots of digitized stuff, rideable flying manta rays, a desert and cantina that, considering the filmmaker's involvement with another Disney franchise, you might call Ant-Mandalorian. Holy that looks like broccoli. With lushly artificial-looking digital backgrounds, foregrounded, a few actors make impressions. William Jackson Harper, quirky as a mind-reading empath. Michelle Pfeiffer, fiercely analytical as an exposition-spouting mom. I can rewrite existence and shatter timelines. But as the final credits rolled through the cast, right down to Woman with Dog, I realized Quantumania only had about as many credited actors as credited production assistants. That feels like the wrong balance for the successor to a couple of Ant-Man flicks that were light and human Marvel palate cleansers. For series purposes, Marvel may need this to be a main course, heavy with world building, but scale has a tendency to overwhelm humor, and gargantuan is really fun, especially if you were hoping for Antic. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Iranian government's crackdown on protesters has scared demonstrators off the streets, but Iran's citizens betray a simmering frustration with the regime, starting with the death of a woman who died after she was detained by the morality police for allegedly violating the dress code. And how much do you think this has to do with Masa Amini? She's changed life in Iranian. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, while a Chinese spy balloon has gotten a lot of attention, hackers for the People's Republic of China have been stealing vast quantities of data through cyber attacks for decades. The White House is set to release the results of President Biden's latest physical today, a document that will be closely scrutinized ahead of his bid for re-election. This is a president that works day in and day out with a grueling schedule and delivers how the results may affect his possible re-election bid for another term coming up. It's 5.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden addressed the nation for the first time today on his decisions to shoot down a Chinese surveillance balloon and three additional unidentified objects in recent weeks. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Biden's remarks come after days of mounting pressure from both Democrats and Republicans to address the matter. President Biden says he's directing his administration to develop sharper rules about how to deal with unidentified 
unidentified objects moving forward. I'll be sharing with Congress these classified policy parameters when they are completed, and uh, they'll remain classified so we don't give our roadmap to our enemies to try to evade our defenses. Lawmakers from both parties have been demanding answers about what the administration knew about the Chinese spy balloon and the decision to shoot down the three additional aerial objects. Biden says those structures were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman has checked himself into Walter Reed Hospital to be treated for depression. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports on the latest health issue for the freshman Democrat. Fetterman is still recovering from a near-fatal stroke last May during his Senate campaign. His office says the Capitol's attending physician, Dr. Brian Monahan, evaluated him and recommended inpatient treatment for clinical depression. A statement from his chief of staff notes Fetterman has struggled with depression throughout his life, and it became severe in recent weeks. Earlier this month, Senator Fetterman was hospitalized briefly, but released after doctors ran tests and found no signs of another stroke or seizures. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Washington. The UN Security Council is considering a draft resolution that would demand Israel cease all settlement activities in the occupied West Bank. The U.S. calls the draft unhelpful. As we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The Biden administration has criticized Israel for its recent decision to legalize nine outposts in the West Bank and build thousands more housing units in existing Jewish settlements. It also put out a joint statement with European diplomats about this. But State Department spokesman Vedant Patel says the U.S does not think a U.N. resolution would help. We don't view the U.N. as the most um, uh, practical or useful forum for, uh, for discussing this issue. He wouldn't say whether the U.S. would veto the draft, saying the U.S. is in touch with its partners and assessing next steps. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Inflation at the wholesale level seems to have picked up a bit in January, something that could be worrisome if the trend continues. The government says its broadest measure of wholesale prices before they head down the pipeline of consumers ticked up seven-tenths of a percent, in part due to a jump in energy prices. On Wall Street, the Dow fell 431 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. They say records are meant to be broken, and that's just what happened today in Boston. We did have a record high of 62. So uh, that breaks the old record way, way back, set back in 1910 of 60 degrees. That's Bill Simpson with the National Weather Service office in Norton. While Boston set a new record high temperature, Worcester fell four degrees shy of its record. Simpson says the warmer weather was south and east of Boston. Providence, for instance, set a record of 71 degrees today, a full 11 degrees warmer than its old record. The police commissioner of Cambridge says she does not have an exact timeline, but she vows to equip the city's police officers with body cameras as soon as possible. The decision follows the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Arif Syed Faisal by Cambridge police last month. Commissioner Christine Elo says body cameras will increase public trust, accountability, and transparency. I think that in today's day and age, one of the things that we're really trying to do is strengthen our legitimacy in the community, not only through accountability and transparency, but also making sure that our officers are engaging in a procedurally just way, and body cameras will really help. Elo says if there had been body camera footage in Faisal's shooting, the public would have a better picture of the incident. 
The man charged with killing a 13-year-old Norwood boy in Boston is set to be arraigned on murder charges tomorrow. Sean Skerritt is accused of shooting Tyler Lawrence last month when the teenager was visiting his grandparents in Mattapan. Skerritt is currently being held on an unrelated federal drug charge. The city of Northampton will take up a vote tonight on whether to establish a reparations commission. That commission would study the city's history of, quote, ra- uh, racialized harms against its black community and recommend ways to address them. In sports today, the Celtics announced Joe Mazzulla as their head coach. Mazzulla had been interim coach since the start of the season after the team parted ways with former coach Ime Udoka. In the forecast, lots of drizzle overnight tonight. Not too chilly, about 48 degrees again, same as last night. Tomorrow, the work week comes to a rainy end. Showers, light rain, some strong winds. Temperatures may not set a record, but will still be mild, reaching the upper 50s. The weekend's looking brighter and chillier. Temperatures in the 40s. 57 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. WBUR supporters include BritBox. Now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Six nights ago, I was in my hotel in Tehran, working, writing up a story, when explosions crackled across the sky. It was the eve of Revolution Day, marking the anniversary of the 1979 revolution, and the regime was kicking things off with a fireworks display. But as we leaned out the windows to listen, it was another sound that stood out. Death to the dictator, they're chanting. Death to Hamenei. Freedom. Anti-government chants, the same ones shouted at the protests that have shaken Iran in these five months since the death of Masa Amini. She's the young Kurdish-Iranian woman, arrested last fall, allegedly for not wearing her headscarf correctly. She died while being held by Iran's so-called morality police. Well, that moment the other night, straining to listen, straining to see who was chanting, watching for other windows softly opening and closing in the apartment buildings around us, it encapsulated the fault lines in Iran. It told a very different story from the one Iran's government has worked to promote about what is happening in the country. We're going to spend these next 10 minutes considering the state of dissent in Iran. Where do the protests go from here? We're going to take you now to three places. First up, we leave Tehran, drive straight south about five hours, and arrive in Isfahan. That's a city of some two million people in central Iran. We've been told the shopkeepers of Isfahan are famous for making you buy something without your even noticing. And sure enough, within a few hours of arrival, we find ourselves in the bazaar chatting with a carpet seller who, like others we interviewed for this story, we have agreed not to identify by name. He showed us his English workbook. He's taking a class, but you'll also hear our interpreter jumping in. How is business? No, it's not good. Four months ago, five months ago, a little better. And how much do you think this has to do with Masa Amini? Masa Amini. She's changed life in Urania. How? Well, they killed her. What can I say? You were very quiet. Is it scary to talk? Yes. I really cry for uh, her Masa Amini. Three days. Three days? Yes. 
Because a whole nation loved her. You didn't know her, so is it because of something she represented to you? What was that? She's now a symbol. Symbol. She's a symbol of what? Iranian people. Woman, life, freedom. Can you tell me why are you frightened to say this? Because I'm here in Iran. Because I am here in Iran, he says. A few steps outside his shop, in the middle of Isfahan's magnificent Naqsh Jahan Square, I meet a woman, 21 years old, sharing french fries out of a waxed paper cone with a young man who looks like he's trying hard to impress her. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Welcome to Iran. Oh, thank you. I ask about the protests. She says they have struggled from lack of leadership. I mean, still, we don't have a proper leader. We didn't find anyone. I mean, an actual leader who loves people. It's hard, and our government won't go easily, but we will replace them. May I ask, did you protest? Were you involved? Um, not as much, because, um, you know, my family didn't let me. It was so dangerous. But at university, somehow, you know, uh, like walking and uh, saying that we want our right back. How do you express that in a way that other people can hear it, in a way that the government might hear it? You know, there were a lot of uh, students there. We walked all around the university and we told some um, words uh, just telling them that, not uh, setting on fire things, um, not uh, breaking down anything, just walking and telling our rights. Peaceful protest. Yeah. She says everything might look calm and normal in Iran, but the outrage, it's not over. The government um, arrested some people, they tortured them. Uh, So um, it's normal that teenagers and people get back to home and not coming out anymore. But it is not completely finished. Okay, stop number two. Back in Tehran, we are making our way out of the labyrinth of the Grand Bazaar and in search of lunch when we spot a group of women not wearing the mandatory headscarf, so defying the law in Iran. We stopped to talk. One of the women, 36 years old, told me through our interpreter that she did not join the protests, at least not physically, but she was active online. I have to go to court tomorrow. Why? For what? To sign a contract that she won't do it again. Because of what I was doing in Instagram. You will sign the statement? I have to. Are you still on Instagram? Yeah, I stopped. But I have to stop for a while. Because if I sign the statement, then I will have to be silent. Are you worried about speaking to us, American broadcaster? Unfortunately, the situation at this time is that we are a bit worried about everything. A bit worried about everything. Well, our last stop is North Tehran, an hour-plus drive in the city's famously snarled traffic. I meet a 20-year-old woman studying psychology at university. So she is focused on the stress, the trauma that Iranians are carrying after these recent months of protests, and then the crackdown on the protests, and now uncertainty over what the future holds. What you'll hear here is just the voice of our interpreter translating. I wonder, has life, does life feel different now? Has it changed for you in any way? The psychological effect and pressure that has been imposed on the Iranian people, perhaps we will 
see the effect of this psychological pressure later on. Have the protests touched your life or have you been involved in any way? This is a political question. This is a political question. She pressed her lips together, looked pointedly at our audio recorder. We put it away. Why are you here, she wanted to know. A journalist asking these questions. Because I'm curious, I told her. I can see the protests have largely gone quiet, but I wonder if the anger that fueled them has. Another pause, and then she said, this kind of dissent, it doesn't go away. So many questions raised by that young woman and the many other people we interviewed during our time in Iran. We're going to talk through some of them now with Ali Vayas, who is director of the Iran Project at the International Crisis Group. He has been listening along with us. I want to welcome you, and I want you to start with that point she made, that the dissent does not go away. As you know, many Iranians, both inside and outside Iran, wanted these protests to be different from ones that have come before, wanted them to become more than protests, to be a revolution. Have they? Are they? You know, my view is that uh, what happened in Iran was a uh, revolution in the mindset of the Iranian people, not a revolution on the streets. The numbers did not reach critical mass. We're talking about tens of thousands of people on the streets, not hundreds of thousands and not millions. But but again, as I said, it wasn't not a revolution on the streets, but it was a revolution on and the mindset of the Iranian people because I think now there is critical mass uh, within the society uh, in understanding that this is a regime uh, that is not open to reforms, that is not uh, able to meet the underlying grievances that gave rise uh, to these protests. Uh, this is going to turn into a almost a continuous cycle of protest. And there might be ebbs and flows, but it's not going to go away. Uh, and eventually this stalemate will have to be broken in the interest of the Iranian people because of the simple fact that it's now the majority of the people who want fundamental change. What role, if any, should the U.S. play here? Because we interviewed some people who said, why isn't the U.S. doing more to help my country, to help democracy? We talked to plenty of other people who were very skeptical about American motives. They point back to 1953 and the U.S. helping to overthrow a democratically elected government in Iran. What, in your view, should the U.S. do? Look, I think it. we have to accept the inconvenient truth that uh, its record of regime change, especially in that part of the world, is nothing but abject failure. The words Afghanistan um, and Iraq spring to mind. Go on. Absolutely. But also other cases, uh, Libya, Syria, uh, there's a long list of uh, U.S. failures. The critical point here is that while the U.S. has an impact in terms of what kind of policy it, it opts, but it's not the determining factor here. The determining factor is really what the Iranian people do, because in 1979, the U.S. did not want regime change in Iran, and yet it happened. In 2011, the U.S. did not want regime change in Tunisia or in Egypt, and yet it, those regimes were toppled. Let me end by circling back to where we began, and that carpet seller in Isfahan, and his belief that Masa Amini and her death have changed Iran. To the best of your ability, trying to track things from outside the country, is that true? Absolutely. But I do believe that if it wasn't because of Masa Amini's tragic death, uh, there would have been another trigger. There, there's just so much pent-up frustrations within the Iranian society. 
it was a ticking bomb and it was just a question of time before it would go off. Uh, in many ways, when I look at Iran right now, I feel it is where the Soviet Union was in the early 1980s, not late 1980s. Early 1980s in the sense that it's uh, a regime that is ideologically bankrupt. Uh, it is at a political dead end. It is just simply unable to address its deep economic and social problems. But it still has a will to fight. Ali Vais, thank you. Absolute pleasure. He directs the Iran Project at the International Crisis Group. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Crowds of retirees in two Chinese cities protested changes to their state's health care plans. That story coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com slash NSBE. Wall Street gave up territory today. The Dow lost one and a quarter percent, 431 points, to end the day at 33,697. S&P sank about one and four tenths percent to wrap up at 4090. The Nasdaq dropped more than one and three quarters percent to finish the day at 11,856. The average price of home heating oil in Massachusetts has dropped by nine cents a gallon in the past week. The State Department of Energy Resources survey shows an average of 4.43 a gallon. That's 48 cents a gallon higher than at the same time last year. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu/globe. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston. I don't know about you, but I need funny to help me get through hard times. And it has been an unfunny week, from toxic spills to spies in the skies. And honestly, life's been unfunny for a while. Our two resident comedians help us figure out how to grapple with what's real and still find a way to laugh. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Damp tonight and damp again tomorrow, unseasonably mild once again, about 48 degrees for a low overnight tonight. The upper 50s for a high tomorrow, a strong wind around. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Arizona is one of the fastest growing states in the country. But a 23-year-long mega drought means it's now facing a reckoning over water that could derail its booming economy. It's now seeing more cuts in water from the shrinking Colorado River than any other state. Arizona's new Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, says overuse of that river is the challenge of our time. 
My administration has a lot of priorities, um, but none of it matters if we run out of water. NPR's Kirk Sigler spoke with Governor Hobbs about the state's water crisis, and he joins me now from Phoenix. Hey, Kirk. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so it sounds like Hobbs is taking office during this time when Arizona is sort of at this tipping point because this mega drought, it's threatening the economic and housing boom, especially in Phoenix where you are. What is she planning to do about it exactly? Well, Elsa, this is Arizona, so let's start with the politics. Uh, Hobbs says her predecessor, Republican Governor Doug Ducey, was hiding the seriousness of this drought. Uh, She recently just made public a report that shows there's a lot less groundwater in the Phoenix area than people want to acknowledge. Like when you drive out into the sprawling West Valley here, you see housing development after housing development still going up despite the mega drought. Mm. You know, it doesn't look like a place that's about to run out of water, but Hobbs told me there just isn't enough water to sustain all this growth. And for too long, Arizona politicians, in her mind, haven't been straight with the public about how dire the situation really is. I just think there was a lack of um, real, um, I guess, honesty with the people of Arizona about the situation we're in and um, just kind of wanting to say, oh, we have enough water, we're fine. Um, And that's really not the case. If we don't take action now, we won't have enough water. Is there a point where we have to say that we can't grow anymore in this state? Uh, There might be. I don't think we're there yet. But I think if we we don't really um, address these issues head on, look at the reality of the situation with water, look at how quickly we're growing, then, then we will get to that point. And I understand that Governor Hobbs, I mean, one of the things that she wants to do is try and modernize Arizona's groundwater laws, which are now like, what, 40 years old? That sounds kind of daunting, though, to just change the laws, right? It, it is, especially in the West, uh, when we're talking Western water law. But um, there is some support for this, uh, I'm hearing, uh, you know, to align these laws with the new drier reality we're facing. But it is a, a daunting task. Um, but, you know, there's an acknowledgement that you, you know, can't maybe have so much uncontrolled growth or farmers can't keep growing so many thirsty crops like cotton and alfalfa in the desert. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also what's been happening here as Arizona's Colorado River water deliveries are cut, farmers and cities are just resorting to pumping more water out of the aquifer. And Arizona has been pretty progressive with storing a lot of water in the aquifer, especially its Colorado River water in the ground, uh, anticipating this very day. But, you know, climate change is just accelerating this and it's uh, colliding, like we've been talking about, with this huge population boom. Right. So I hear the governor saying, "Okay, it's time for her state to face this new reality. But I mean, Arizona has pretty polarized politics. So how do you get everybody to face this reality together? Uh, That's an understatement. I mean, she's trying to focus on policy when the far-right Republicans in this state, let's be clear, are still focused on the election, claiming without any evidence that she was illegitimately uh, installed as governor. You know, all politics is national. So you remember Elsa, her opponent, Carrie Lake. Well, she's right now traveling the country making similar baseless claims. You know, uh, Katie Hobbs told me this is all a big distraction. I mean, I don't pay attention to what my former former opponent does. But what is a little daunting is is the legislature that we have who that has really in these first few weeks of their session kind of shown that they're not interested in working together. Uh, they were elected by the same people who elected me and we have these tough challenges we have to come together to work on. So while they're focused on politics, Elsa, you know, this mega drought is persisting despite some recent snow here and rain in Arizona. And the federal government could come in any day and mandate more and much bigger water cuts across the board. 
That is NPR's Kirk Sigler joining us from Phoenix. Thank you, Kirk. Glad to be here. The alleged fleet of Chinese spy balloons and unidentified flying objects have captivated the nation and also brought increased scrutiny to American airspace. But the People's Republic of China has already stolen vast quantities of data from U.S. agencies and companies. The country's been doing it for more than a decade, not by spying from the skies, but by prowling the Internet. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin is here to give us the bigger picture. Hey, Jenna. Hey, Ari. What's the cybersecurity community saying about uh, the country's recent balloon obsession? (laughs) Well, it's got a lot of cyber experts kind of scratching their heads a little bit because, I mean, they've been focused on Chinese espionage and cyberspace for quite a while. The balloon itself can seem ominous, and it's definitely caught the public's imagination, but the national security threat is fairly minimal. I spoke to Ben Reed. He leads analysis on nation-state hacking at Google's Mandiant, and he tells me that Chinese digital espionage has gone on unabated, balloon or no balloon. We've definitely continued to see Chinese intrusion activity. It has not stopped with the balloon, but we haven't really seen any relationship Sort of the, the, the broad profile of attempts by the PRC to collect a lot of information sort of matches. But aside from that super high level overlap, I guess I can't draw any connections between them. In other words, the balloon fits into this overall pattern of collecting as much information as possible. But it's pretty hard to beat what you can collect in cyberspace. And China's been conducting digital intrusions for decades. In fact, Reid actually mentioned that one of the first hacking groups his firm tracked was a Chinese cyber espionage group linked to the People's Liberation Army. And they had been stealing economic secrets since way back in 2006. Now there are dozens of groups in China alone that his team tracks. Okay, so tell us about one of the hacks that China pulled off and what the impact was. Sure. So one of the best examples, I think, is between 2013 and 2014. And that's when China breached the Office of Personnel Management, which is basically the human resources department of the entire federal government. They stole 22 million records from security clearance forms to fingerprints. And that data could be used for profiling, knowing who works in what agency, maybe even for the recruitment of intelligence assets. We don't really know for sure. So that's the U.S. government, but we also know that China has hacked U.S. companies and individuals. I mean, how worried should folks be about that? I think a little more worried than about the balloon, perhaps. Uh, FBI and other U.S. agencies have been warning for a while about China's ongoing efforts to spy on dissidents, as well as, you mentioned, steal economic information and industrial secrets. That includes everyone from telecom firms, defense companies, even massive hotel chain Marriott, where the hackers stole information on about 500 million hotel guests. They basically go where the data lives. For Ben Reed at Mandiant, it's a pretty simple explanation. Computers are everywhere. Almost all information is on a computer somewhere. He explained that it's a pretty low risk to get the most large amount of information, whereas something like the balloon is actually limited by its vantage point and its capabilities. Okay, so balloon aside, what can a person or a company do to protect themselves against this kind of cyber espionage? Conveniently, the advice for basic cyber hygiene is similar across the board, whether you're worried about Chinese espionage or a criminal ransomware attack. That includes installing two-factor authentication using a password manager. The basics won't protect against every advanced attack, but it will make it harder. That's NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. Thank you. Thanks. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking sports, interim Boston Celtics coach Joe Mazzulli is no longer interim. Celts have named him the 19th head coach in franchise history. Mazzulli led the Green to the best record in the league this season, 42-17. and He takes over from former coach Ima Udoka, who is no longer a member of the franchise after reportedly violating team policies. Boston Bruins visit the Nashville Predators tonight. The puck drops at 8 If you're longing for baseball, the Red Sox say they'll put single-game tickets on sale one week from today, starting at 10 o'clock next Thursday. They'll be for games from mid-June to almost the end of July. Feeling like spring, not quite summertime yet. The thermometer hit 62 degrees at Logan Airport today, breaking the old record high of 60 degrees on this day, set in 1910. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, helping all ages overcome anxiety and OCD with a mix of science and compassion. CBTeam.org. When we talk about armoring campuses against mass shootings, we may be ignoring an uncomfortable truth. There was research the FBI did many years ago about targeted school shootings. Only about 10% were by people that had no connection to the institution. What do you do when the school shooting threat comes from within the school community? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In eastern Ohio, the head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is trying to assure people forced from their homes by a toxic train derailment nearly two weeks ago that testing shows the air and water are now safe. EPA Administrator Michael Regan's visit today comes after residents of East Palestine, Arstein, packed a meeting yesterday demanding to know if they're safe. Let me be clear. EPA will exercise our oversight and our enforcement authority under the law to be sure we are getting the results that the community deserves. Regan says he's confident that technology being used to clean up the mess would protect public health. Residents have been frustrated by what they say is incomplete and vague information about the toxic chemicals and the long-term effects. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Germany for the Munich Security Conference, where she's due to give a speech tomorrow about the administration's continued commitment to Ukraine. The global summit comes almost a year after Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, as Esme Nicholson reports. Vice President Harris will join political leaders, intelligence chiefs and top diplomats from around the world for what is known as the Davos of Defence. She's expected to hold bilaterals with a number of leaders at the three-day conference, including British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Delegates from Russia and Iran are missing from the guest list this year in response to Moscow's war in Ukraine and Tehran's brutal suppression of protests at home. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi is in attendance, as is Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Conference organizers hope there will be ample opportunity for the U.S. and China to ease tensions while in Munich. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street after reports showed that inflation pressures continue to impact the economy. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. UMass Amherst has a new leader. Javier Reyes, an economist and administrator, will become the university's first Latino chancellor in June. WBUR's Max Larkin reports Reyes takes over from Kumbal Subaswamy, who is retiring. 
Even as they unanimously voted him in, UMass's board of trustees repeated that Reyes has big shoes to fill. Under Subaswamy's leadership, the state's flagship university has experienced an upswing in graduation rates, diversity, research funding, and national reputation. Reyes vows to continue that work. Fuel innovation, economic mobility, diversity, equity, and access to continue to attract and retain talent to fuel the vibrant economy and the trajectory of the Commonwealth. That is my commitment to you. Reyes will come to UMass from the University of Illinois, Chicago, where he serves as interim chancellor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is moving forward with her plan to create more affordable housing. Today, Mayor Wu announced the creation of 800 income-restricted homes in eight neighborhoods. Part of the plan calls for making use of old buildings. The mayor spoke in front of a former Catholic church in Jamaica Plain that will be developed into 55 affordable units. Treasured community spaces maintained and even expanded in the uses that match the needs of our communities today. Wu announced $67 million in funding for specific projects across the city. Governor Maury Healy's administration is announcing a $50 million grant program to reduce emissions from low- and moderate-income housing. The money will be used for everything from replacing fossil heating systems with air or ground source heat pumps to installing rooftop solar panels. The state hopes the program will also improve indoor air quality without contributing to the rising cost of housing. It became official today. Former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh is leaving the Biden administration to lead the NHL Players Association. WBR's Fausto Menard reports Walsh will become executive director of the Players Association after the union's board unanimously approved his appointment. Walsh will step down as U.S. Labor Secretary and start his new job in the middle of next month. He says he will use his labor and political experience to help the players. The former Boston mayor did not complete his second full term at City Hall in order to go to Washington. Walsh joins former Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker in the sporting universe. Next month, Baker will become head of the NCAA, the governing body of college sports. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. 57 degrees now in the Boston area. Clouds should stick around. So should the mild temperatures. Tonight, cloudy skies, windy, dipping to 48. Tomorrow, damp and windy. Highs could reach the upper 50s, falling to the 40s, though, over the weekend. Still pretty nice. Sunny skies on Saturday. Sunshine and clouds both on Sunday. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The White House released the results of President Biden's latest physical today. It's a document that's being read with more than the usual amount of interest because the president is 80 years old and is expected to soon declare that he plans to run for a second term in office. NPR's Tamara Keith is at the White House. And Tam, tell us what this report says. 
Yes. So uh, the the top line, I guess, is that the president's doctor says that he remains healthy and vigorous and is fit to execute the duties of the presidency. Now, digging in a little deeper, uh, he says that there were no residual symptoms from from COVID. Uh, The president over the summer had COVID, no signs of long COVID. Last year in his report, uh, the doctor talked about uh, a, a stiffening of the president's gait as he walked. And that stiffening remains, though it hasn't gotten any worse. Uh, and the causes are, uh, after a, a an extensive neurological study, uh, it is not Parkinson's, it is not a stroke, it is caused, according to president's the president's Dr. Kevin O'Connor is caused by a combination of spinal arthritis, mild post-fracture foot, foot arthritis, and mild sensory peripheral neuropathy uh, affecting the way he feels his feet. Uh, we'll note that a small lesion was found on the president's chest and sent for a biopsy. Those results are still pending. That was found today. Uh, the doctor notes that the president spent a lot of time in the sun as a youth. President Biden is doing better than I am, certainly. He he works out five days a week, and he has lost six pounds. I cannot say the same. Okay, so pretty healthy. Uh, he is still, as we said, 80 years old and the oldest president in American history. So what are the politics of this report? Right. Uh, he is 80 years old, and he has said he intends to run for re-election. Uh, he hasn't made it official yet, but all signs are pointing in that direction. Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor who jumped into the race this week for the Republican nomination, is trying to make an issue out of age and said that there should be a competency test for any candidate over the age of 75. I will note that former President Donald Trump uh, is already in the race, and he is 76 years old. Um, So she's kind of going after both of them. Haley's proposal was all about grabbing attention, and it had the White House answering questions today about whether President Biden is really up for another term. Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, was quick to push back. The president always says this, which is watch him. And if you watch him, you'll see that he has a grueling schedule that he keeps up with, that sometimes some of us are not able to keep up with. Yeah, and uh, I will say that the the president, when he returned from his uh, medical appointment today, he was at uh, Walter Reed uh, for about three hours. Uh, when he returned, he ran across the South Lawn. Uh, it was wet, it was raining, but he was also making sure that there is video out there of him running. And and certainly, this clean physical is one more thing that could clear the way for a re-election campaign that is already taking shape. And so is there anything in particular that folks are looking to as we, you know, uh, look at this assessment of his health? Well, certainly uh, we will be waiting for the results of that biopsy. That is is something that that people are looking for. Uh, Don't expect to hear from uh, Dr. O'Connor in person. He is unlikely uh, to take uh, any questions. This was a fairly dry memo. uh, Although there are plenty of questions to ask, this White House isn't interested and drawing too much attention to the president's health uh, or making a star of his doctor, they would much rather focus on his accomplishments that they, they say are plenty. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thank you. You're welcome.
And now to Kentucky, where today the state Supreme Court decided the state's two laws banning abortion should remain in place. The decision comes months after a ballot question in the November election, where a majority of Kentucky voters sided with abortion rights. Now the decision on whether to ban the procedure goes back to a lower state court. But today's news does not bode well for abortion rights advocates. Divya Karthikeyan, Capitol reporter at Kentucky Public Radio, joins us now for more. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. All right. Hi. Okay, so break this down a little more for us. What does this decision mean exactly? So currently, abortion is illegal in the state of Kentucky, and we have two laws here. We have the trigger law, which automatically bans abortion except in life-threatening cases, and we have a ban on abortion after six weeks. So the Kentucky Supreme Court had heard challenges to those bans, and, you know, we're getting this ruling more than two months later, and this ruling today would allow these two abortion bans to remain in place. Now, the Supreme Court here is throwing it back to a lower court to decide on the larger questions here and merits. You know, the main merit being, is the right to an abortion a constitutional right at all in Kentucky? Uh, We have the right to privacy and self-determination in our state constitution, and that's what abortion rights advocates say their argument is based on. And remind us why this case was so closely watched. So in June 2022, you know, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, this trigger law immediately came into effect, and that meant nearly all abortions were illegal. This was a law enacted by state legislature in 2019, and there was outcry that these bans were not representative of what Kentuckians wanted. And so voters in Kentucky had this opportunity to weigh in on that in last year's election. Mm -hmm. We had a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would say there is no right to an abortion in the Constitution. We had over 60% of voters cast their ballot in support of abortion rights. This was all happening when we had legal tussle playing out in the courts and a, legis- and a legislature that was mulling on more restrictions. So the abortion rights issue for people in Kentucky really hinge on so many other factors beyond their control. I yeah. think that's why it's so closely watched. Yeah, so what's been the reaction so far to this state Supreme Court decision? So the Republican Attorney General, uh, Daniel Cameron, he's also running for governor, he's pursued challenges to abortion rights in the past, and he said, quote, this is a significant victory, and we will continue to stand up for the unborn by defending these laws. And ACLU Kentucky, which defended the two only abortion providers in court, said the ruling was a huge disappointment. Here's Communications Director Angela Cooper. We had hoped that we would be able to resume abortion care in Kentucky um, since it is an incredibly important health care service. However, we were also prepared for this and our legal team continues to strategize about how they will approach this with the lower court. Well, that's a good question. What exactly happens now in Kentucky in terms of abortion access? So abortion remains illegal. We now have a Republican supermajority in our legislature. I've been covering the session very closely. We're seeing a lot of Republicans file some restrictive bills. One this week would treat abortion as homicide. And maybe Republicans might be interested in a bill that would provide exceptions for rape and incest. We don't know yet. The ACLU is saying they're working on a strategy for when the case goes to a lower court. Uh, Right now, the only way a pregnant person in Kentucky can get an abortion, unless their life is at risk, risk is to travel to neighboring states like Illinois or Virginia. That is Divya Karthikeyan, Capitol reporter at Kentucky Public Radio. Thank you, Divya. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. PFAS are manufactured chemicals used in lots of everyday products, food packaging, outdoor gear, even hand lotion. The best studied of them are linked to a long and growing list of medical concerns. Including cancer, liver damage, obesity, risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease. They can adversely affect almost all of our organs. As part of our reporting on PFAS, WBR's Gabriella Emanuel takes us on a trip inside the body to understand what these chemicals do. Boxes line the front hall of Wendy Thomas's house in Merrimack, New Hampshire, just a bit north of the Massachusetts border. We get stacks of this. It's, it's almost up to my chest. Inside each box, jugs of water. Thomas uses it to cook and drink. That's because her well water is contaminated with PFAS. When PFAS is in your water, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. Thomas lives near an area that's been polluted by a factory that makes special fabrics with chemical coatings. After hearing about it at a local meeting, she had her well tested. And then her blood. Almost all Americans have PFAS in their blood. So Thomas thought she was prepared for the results. But she wasn't. The only word I can come up with is gobsmacked, but I'm sure there's a better word. Um, Numb, uh, raw. She says her blood levels are higher than 99% of Americans. Thomas began to advocate for better PFAS regulations, even becoming a state representative. But soon her family started falling ill. All six of her adult children are dealing with health issues, like autoimmune conditions, high cholesterol, and weight challenges. And Thomas was diagnosed with breast cancer, despite no family history of it. It's not clear what, if any, role PFAS played. St. Gobain, the company that runs the factory, has not admitted to contaminating the Thomas's well. But it does provide her with those jugs of water. I don't know if this is all related to PFAS, but it's, it's, you know, it's beginning to look like a duck and it's beginning to quack like a duck. Scientists are worried about people like Thomas who have been exposed to lots of PFAS, but they say even small amounts could be problematic. These experts are learning more about what's happening once PFAS gets into the body. The first step, they know. Imagine taking a gulp of PFAS-laden water. Those chemicals go from your stomach to your intestine. And in the small intestine, they'll basically be completely absorbed into the body. Angela Slitt studies PFAS at the University of Rhode Island's College of Pharmacy. She says once the chemicals get inside, they are like obnoxious houseguests. And they have three main calling cards. First, they overstay their welcome. That's because all PFAS contain chemical bonds that are super strong and stable. That's good if you're making a consumer product, but she says it means these visitors are hard to get rid of. They are just virtually indestructible. So, you know, it takes high, high temperatures to break down the carbon fluorine bonds. And a problem is that the body doesn't break them down either. That's where they get the nickname forever chemicals. So substances like caffeine, Tylenol, and the plastics chemical BPA, they leave the body in a matter of hours. Lead leaves the blood in a month or so. For the most prevalent types of PFAS, we're talking years. And in rodent studies, Slit says, Because the absorption is so effective, but then the elimination is so poor, it builds up really fast. 
That brings us to the second calling card, PFAS spread out. Megan Romano is an epidemiologist at Dartmouth School of Medicine. She says PFAS get into the blood. What that means is it's a really excellent delivery system to get all sorts of places in our body. That's different from many other toxins that influence just one system or organ. Romano says PFAS can mess with a lot of body functions. One way they do this is by appearing to be something they're not. That's the third calling card. On a molecular level, PFAS can click into certain receptors in the cell. Essentially, PFAS looks enough like fatty acid that it fools these nuclear receptors into thinking that it knows the secret handshake and that's how it gets in the door. Romano says with this trick, PFAS can interfere with hormones, and studies suggest they have the potential to alter how our bodies store and use fat. Those are just some of the harmful effects scientists are discovering. And so far, there's no good way to evict this unwanted guest. Philippe Grandjean of Harvard's School of Public Health says a parent can foist PFAS onto the next generation through the placenta or nursing. Let's say she uh, breastfeeds for six months. Uh, She can actually eliminate half of her body burden uh, to the child. You can also get PFAS out by menstruating or giving blood. Scientists still have a lot of questions. There are thousands of different PFAS chemicals, and most haven't been studied. Chemical manufacturers cast doubt on the research that has been done. Some politicians are working to outlaw these chemicals in many consumer products. A bill to do that was recently filed in Massachusetts. The lawmakers say they don't want to add more PFAS to our environment or let them into our bodies. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Our PFAS reporting continues tomorrow morning. We'll ask the experts how you can reduce your exposure to these forever chemicals. And you can see how cities and towns are addressing PFAS in drinking water at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot, two weeks only beginning March 21st. Tickets at EmersonColonialTheater.com. This is WBUR in Rio, Carnival, geriatric style. That story is coming up in five minutes. It's now 5.51. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Hundreds of thousands of high schoolers will take a difficult test a few months from now, the Advanced Placement Exam on Government and Politics. The class that prepares students is sometimes known as APGov. A high enough score can earn you college credit. But one topic that students will not find on this year's exam, the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade. Katie Riddle reports. High school teacher William Quigley has taught his students about Roe versus Wade every spring for the last decade. He works at a charter school in Broward County, Florida. It opens up such a larger discussion. The study of significant Supreme Court cases is a cornerstone of the official curriculum in this class. Students prepare to answer essay questions on these cases for the exam. Roe versus Wade, says Quigley, is special. That's because his students can't wait to talk about it. It's a way of getting into a talk about so much of what the implication of a modern society is 
and what liberty means and what our rights and what are our responsibilities. He's still planning to teach it this spring, but he doesn't have to. The nonprofit that creates the test and the curriculum is called the College Board. It announced recently that students will not be tested on Roe versus Wade this year. The legal implications for this case are evolving, the College Board wrote in a statement. Questions written in advance could be inaccurate by the time of the test. Quigley doesn't buy it. There are a lot of AP teachers, quite honestly, who are uncomfortable teaching it. There are a lot of school districts that are uncomfortable that it's required. And I think this was an easy way for the college board to kind of wash their hands of it for right now. The college board declined to be interviewed for this story. They said in an email that the decision was not an effort to discourage teaching on the subject. Quigley says there's an important difference between feeling discouraged and feeling supported. In the state of Florida, all it takes is a parent saying, I think you're inappropriate. A Florida state law allows parents to bring a legal complaint against a school district. And although I do everything I can not to think about it, or certainly not act upon it as a teacher, you almost look at your students in a different way. On a recent day after school, 11 students gathered in Quigley's classroom. A green and orange University of Miami flag hangs on the wall behind them. Every one of these students said learning about Roe was important to them. Here's senior Jamelia Fletcher. So it's all about the person who's teaching the class. Fletcher says if Roe is optional curriculum, teaching it could be a political decision. That brings in bias. If they're for it, you're going to learn about it. If they're not, they are not. And it brings in a whole ethical issue too. And then religion can become a big part of it as well. Fletcher says there aren't that many topics in this class as relevant to the lives of young adults. If you're in that situation and you need to get an abortion or want to get one, you should be able to know what to do and how it came to be. I feel like the fact that it was overruled in the Supreme Court is fine. Senior Miguel Bean thinks abortion should be legal, but he says it should be left up to the states. Because states are closer to the people and they're better able to represent the will of the people. Bean says the fact that he disagrees with some of his peers on this issue is exactly why they need to talk about it. I feel like we need to be careful with subjects like these that we don't become too polarized, say, and we're unable to hear the other side. Some teachers aren't too concerned about Roe not being on the exam. David Wolford teaches the class in Ohio. He says now that the case is overturned, it's fundamentally different than the others these kids will be tested on. And so the college board can't be expected to put that case in the same category. He can see the logic, he says, of removing it altogether. I don't think this college board's concerned about anything other than it being accurate and making sure that the test and the test questions are fair. In Florida, William Quigley says he's committed to teaching about Roe versus Wade, but he can see how some teachers might make a different choice. I will certainly not sit in judgment of any teacher who says it's not worth the fight. It's not worth the possible pain. The unit about Roe is coming up. Quigley and his students say they're looking forward to it. As one student pointed out, what this class teaches is that you can't avoid complicated issues. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle. Rio de Janeiro's world-famous carnival gets underway this weekend. But in the run-up to official festivities, local parties have been in full swing. These free celebrations are called blocos, block parties. Most have a theme. NPR's Carrie Khan takes us to one neighborhood across the bay from Rio where the party is, shall we say, of a mature nature. OK, 
Okay, it's not what you think. When we say mature, we just mean aged, experienced. Like 85-year-old Odeche Fagundas da Cruz. Dressed in bright neon spandex shorts, sensible shoes, and a splash of red lipstick, she says she's here to shake her hips. Maybe not as much as usual. She says she's a little tired. She was out dancing until 2 a.m. last night. The master of ceremonies welcomes the crowd to this year's Bola Branca, loosely translated the white-haired party for those 60 and up. Everyone sings the Blocko song printed on the back of the red and white paper fans. It's not even noon and it's already in the high 80s. I'm jumping, I'm singing, I'm on fire, go the lyrics. 85-year-old Da Cruz says this is just what the community needs now. It feels good to shed the sadness that a lot of people were feeling during the pandemic, she says. Brazil was hit hard by COVID. Nearly 700,000 people died, many elderly. This is the first year the 60 and up block party is back on since 2020. Molina. They've added a food drive this year. With every donation of dry goods, Michelle Machado hands out a shirt and condoms. Everyone likes them, he says, even if most of the women tell them they're for a neighbor. 73-year-old Maria Molina doesn't need excuses. People have a lot of sex during carnival, she shouts to me over the loud music. She has six kids, eight grandkids, and two great-grandchildren. She's widowed and says it's hard to find a good partner these days. Most men just use you and lose you, she says. She loves the friendship and dancing she's found in this blocko. This neighborhood in Niteroi has the second highest number of senior citizens in all Brazil, says Bloco President Sergio Vraneke. We can't let our age hold us back. We may not have young bodies anymore, he says, but we are for sure young in spirit. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Niteroi, Brazil. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics presenting Turn Every Page, a new film by Lizzie Gottlieb about the 50-year relationship between writer Robert Caro and his editor Robert Gottlieb. Now playing in theaters. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks, NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at VIX.com. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden made his first extensive remarks today on the U.S. response to the Chinese spy balloon and other unidentified aerial objects recently shot down over the U.S. and Canada. Only the first balloon that was downed is believed to have been used for espionage. Today is Thursday, February 16th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the toxic chemical spill in a community in Ohio has many questioning what long-term environmental effects might be on residents and surrounding areas. When the governor was asked about the water quality, he said, well, you know, I might recommend drinking bottled water for a little while. That's not real reassuring. For the second time, there's been a leak of coolant on a Russian space vehicle docked at the International Space Station, and it's causing major issues. And the winning formula for Star Trek Picard as the series soars in its third and final season. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. U.S. officials think it's possible a recently downed Chinese balloon was supposed to fly over Hawaii and Guam, but was carried off course by the winds and traveled over the continental U.S. As NPR's Greg Myrie explains, the U.S. is still trying to piece together China's intentions. U.S. officials remain convinced the Chinese balloon that flew over the U.S. was being used for spying. But a U.S. official, speaking on condition of anonymity, says the balloon may not have taken the path the Chinese intended. The U.S. believes it's possible the Chinese aim was to send the balloon over Hawaii and Guam to look at U.S. military sites. But winds may have taken the balloon off course, taking it over Alaska, Canada, and then the continental U.S. The U.S. Navy is still working to recover additional parts of the balloon that was shot down on February 4th off the coast of South Carolina. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The Kentucky Supreme Court has ruled the state's near total ban on abortion will remain in place while a lawsuit over the matter continues. The ban has been in place since August of last year, immediately after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Kentucky decision has been closely watched as it comes just months after voters there signaled support for abortion rights at the ballot box. Abortion remains banned while the decision heads back to the lower court, but Kentucky's abortion rights advocates vow to keep fighting. Sections of a special grand jury report detailing efforts by then-President Trump and his allies to overturn Georgia's 2020 election are now public, but the juror's recommendations on criminal charges remain under wraps. Member station WABE Sam Greenglass has the story. This investigation started with Trump's January 2021 phone call to Georgia's Secretary of State. Trump asked him to find the votes he needed to carry the state. The sections that have now been released don't offer much in the way of new information, but they do say the jurors took votes on whether to recommend indictments and detail their concerns that some witnesses lied under oath, saying those people should be charged for perjury. 
The jurors also unanimously agreed that no widespread election fraud occurred in Georgia. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has to decide whether to pursue any charges. A regular grand jury would be tasked with bringing any indictments. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. A major recall on the part of electric vehicle maker Tesla of U.S. vehicles to update their full driving system beta software. That's after U.S. regulators said the system did not adequately adhere to traffic safety laws and could cause crashes. Decision today from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration affecting 362,000 vehicles, most of the company's lines. Tesla via Twitter called the word recall for the over-the-air software update, quote, anachronistic and just flat wrong. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 431 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. February is a month for weather records in Boston, highs and lows. It hit 62 degrees at Logan Airport today. That breaks the record high of 60 set for this date in 1910. Bill Simpson with the National Weather Service says 62 degrees is a lot warmer than what it usually is like right now. Normal high is 39, so that's a pretty good jump. And normal low is 25. So by Saturday morning, we'll actually be in the low 20s. So it'll be a bit of a shock from this, today's warm temperatures. Providence hit a big 71 degrees today. That shattered its previous record by 11 degrees. Worcester was four degrees shy of its previous record. Earlier this month, low temperature records for the date were broken in Boston when it dropped to 10 degrees below zero. A system to prevent drivers from getting into the wrong side of the highway could be expanded sooner than expected. The detection system being installed this week was supposed to be part of a multi-year pilot program, but Massachusetts Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says they will expand the system across the state to alert drivers when they're going the wrong way. You see flashing LEDs, you see uh, signs that light up, you hear an audible alarm on some of these. And effectively what that does is it gives you an opportunity to hit the brakes, realize you've gone the wrong direction, and turn around. Since 2014, more than 2,000 cases of people driving the wrong way on Massachusetts highways have been reported. There have been 30 fatal wrong way crashes. The city of Boston is looking for black male high school students who want to organize their communities for social change. Applications are now being accepted for the Young Black Leaders Boston cohort. 20 students will be selected for an eight-week course that will help them learn how to be more civically engaged in order to make a positive impact. 55 degrees now in the Boston area should be in the upper 40s overnight tonight. Showers and patchy fog still damp for tomorrow, unseasonably mild once again, rising to the upper 50s with a strong wind around. Skies should be clear for Saturday and Sunday. Highs about 40 for Saturday, the upper 40s for Sunday. Right now, it's looking like a cloudy day on the President's Day holiday Monday, maybe about 53 degrees tops. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine asked the White House for more direct federal support in the response to the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, a disaster that has been a constant worry for residents in the area for nearly two weeks now. Since the accident has happened, I haven't been sleeping more than a few hours each night because I'm constantly trying to find information. 
That is Diane Elzer, who lives and works in East Palestine. She and the rest of the town had to evacuate after a train carrying chemicals derailed on February 3rd. One of the chemicals on board, vinyl chloride, posed a risk of exploding. So emergency management crews intentionally burned them off. That created a massive plume of dark smoke all over the town, which state officials did admit could be hazardous if inhaled. Days later, residents were allowed to go back home as the Environmental Protection Agency monitored air quality. Earlier this week, the EPA said that none of the homes they screen had vinyl chloride or hydrogen chloride in the air. And the EPA said that as of today, there were no water quality concerns. But many have still been worried about safety. Elzer says she's concerned about longer-term effects of this chemical in the air and in local waters. Aside from contractors going around testing air quality and lots of trucks at our local creeks doing all sorts of remediation work, it almost seems back to normal. Maybe it's like a sword of Damocles. You don't know when it's going to drop. You don't know what's going to happen. Residents of East Palestine have reported smelling a strong odor and some symptoms like red eyes, nausea, and headaches. Here's Maggie Guglielmo, a local small business owner. I now wear an N95 mask when I go in, but I can still smell the stuff. And I also wear goggles, but it's still irritating my eyes. Other people in this rural town, right by the Pennsylvania border, have also reported dead fish in the creeks. But despite these concerns, some experts say burning the chemical was the right thing to do. Here's Bill Dieslin, board chair for the Institute of Hazardous Materials Management. I think that a fire is the lesser of the two evils. From what I'm reading from the emergency response guide and from safety data sheets, the emergency responders were following the instructions that are available to them in an emergency. Well, let's bring in Stan Myberg to help us understand more about the situation. He's the executive director of the Center for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability at Wake Forest University. He also worked for the EPA for 39 years, including as the acting deputy director. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. So I know that you've been watching the EPA response and the response from the rail company that was transporting these chemicals. You've been watching from afar, just like most of us. And given all of the concerns reported by these residents and some other environmental experts, I am wondering, is there anything about the response that concerns you? Well, first, I just want to express my empathy and for the people involved in this. It's scary. It's unknown. There are a lot of questions, and it can seem hard in the middle of an incident like this to get accurate information. So you have to start from that standpoint. <laughs> Well, the incident, of course, gives tremendous cause for concern about rail transportation. But as far as the response is concerned, EPA appears to have used every monitoring technology available to it, high-tech airplanes, mobile monitors, stationary monitors to get data. It's very understandable, though, how that's not necessarily reassuring to the public. Mm -hmm. It reports information in terms of chemicals and concentrations, which is important for risk management, but it doesn't necessarily address anxiety or the right. cases of things you can smell. Well, let's talk more about that because, yeah, even though the images of that smoke have looked really alarming, as officials have said, they followed specific emergency response guidelines about how to handle this chemical, which was through a controlled burn. Like we mentioned, the alternative could have been an explosion. So 
Do you think that the messaging around the response has been clear enough to the public in order to alleviate any concerns? It's hard to say for the public because my own background is such that I kind of hear the messages from different ears. I have no reason to believe that the actions were anything other than appropriate. The messaging is hard to do when you're dealing with something that is unknown to the public, very much feared, and can be seen as catastrophic. Why do you think it has been so hard for residents to to trust the air quality safety, even though EPA officials are saying, look, it's okay, they are offering assurances? If you listen to EPA and incident management responses, you will hear that they don't usually use the word safe. In fact, generally in incident responses, people stay away from that word. That the general guidance is when you are talking about risks, you tell people first what you know, Then you tell them what you don't know and are doing to try to find out. For example, you're trying to get more data, which can take some time to report out and not just be in real time. Basically, the best advice you can give for a person who is concerned about their health, since EPA doesn't know you, is that you consult with your personal health care provider or that responders make available public health assistance to people who want to know about themselves, not just in general. So you're telling me that residents should not be listening to what EPA officials are saying about the air quality, but should be talking to their doctors? No, I'm not saying that at all. What, in fact, I'm saying is that the information about air quality is important information. But for you, if you are concerned about your health, you really should be talking to your personal health care provider because they will know you better than anyone else does. When you were with the EPA, you were involved in the response to another train derailment involving hazardous chemicals, I understand. What kinds of lessons did you learn in that incident that you think would be helpful for people in and around East Palestine to understand? That's an excellent question. The incident you're referring to was in Graniteville, South Carolina in 2005, a very tragic incident involving a Norfolk Southern train. Uh, Ten people were killed in the release of chlorine gas from a series of cars. And what I took away from that is that there are three things that you really have to pay attention to in preventing incidents like this. One deals with Mm -hmm. labor and making sure there's adequate staffing to make sure the railroads can know what their risks are. The second is the equipment itself and the safety and security of rail cars used to transport hazardous materials, because this happens all over the country all the time. Mm -hmm. And similarly with the rails themselves. And finally, what routes are most appropriate for transporting these materials, which are an element of our current commercial society? So all of those things have to be paid attention to, to minimize the consequences of accidents when they happen. So as the response to this accident continues, what specifically will you be watching for? Well, there are a couple of things. One is I will be specifically watching for continued monitoring, not because I think there's going to be much new information from it, but it's important to do that to reassure people that, in fact, you're continuing to watch. Secondly, there'll be continued sampling, especially water sampling and groundwater sampling, to see if there is any long-term contamination in groundwater or soils around the site of the accident. So those are two things that I would watch for. Stan Myberg, Executive Director of the Center for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability at Wake Forest University. Thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Now to news from overseas and off-planet. Russian space managers have delayed sending a replacement Soyuz capsule to the International Space Station after a second spacecraft docked at the ISS sprung a leak. 
The launch, scheduled for Sunday, is now on hold. Engineers say the crew is not in danger, but as Brendan Byrne of member station WMFE reports, it all raises questions about how three of the station's crew members will get home. 250 miles above Earth, there are currently seven people on the International Space Station, where operations are continuing. That's despite coolant leaks on two docked vehicles, a Progress supply craft that launched to the station in October, and a Soyuz spacecraft that transported two Russian cosmonauts and a U.S. astronaut to the station in September. When they'll return now is unclear, says space industry analyst Laura Forsick. There is a little bit of uncertainty. There was a uh, a launch that has been postponed. It was supposed to be in a few days for a replacement capsule to return the crew back to the Earth. The uncertainty began in December when the Soyuz spacecraft spewed liquid coolant into space. The Russian space agency Roscosmos concluded the first leak was caused by a micrometeoroid impact. After a review, NASA and Roscosmos said the damaged spacecraft was unsafe for the crew to use to return home. The plan to launch an empty capsule to use as a return vehicle is now on hold after the other Russian spacecraft sprung a leak on Saturday. Here's former NASA astronaut Terry Verts. Spaceships are having similar malfunctions, and that's very concerning, and it's a really important malfunction. The capsule's coolant system is responsible for lowering the temperature inside during the fiery re-entry through Earth's atmosphere. Verts, who flew to the station on a Soyuz spacecraft in 2014, says the issues with the two spacecraft so close together leads him to believe the issue is not a micrometeoroid strike like first thought. That's probably no coincidence, and that would lead me to think that it's probably some type of manufacturing defect or something wrong with the spaceship itself. Analysts say Russia's supply chain has been stretched thin due to the war in Ukraine. Russian engineers are reviewing data ahead of the launch of the empty spacecraft, a mission dubbed MS-23, which was scheduled to lift off this week. Space Policy Online editor Marcia Smith says NASA has confidence in its Russian counterparts to make the right decision. So I think we just need to wait and see when NASA and Roscosmos feel confident that Soyuz MS-23 does not have any design or manufacturing defects and, in fact, will be safe to bring back the Soyuz MS-22 crew. Typically, station crew members serve six-month rotations. If there is a delay launching the empty capsule, the three who are stranded could stay on the station up to a year. NASA says they're prepared for an extended mission should it be necessary and will enjoy their extra time on the orbiting lab as it circles the Earth. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on Marketplace in just about 10 minutes, why the federal budget and a household budget don't work the same way. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont. Sales and service of new and pre-owned Subarus celebrating Washington's birthday all month. CitysideSubaru.com. Wall Street gave up ground today. The Dow lost one and a quarter percent, 431 points, to end the day at 33,697. S&P sank about one and four tenths percent to wrap up at 4090. The Nasdaq dropped more than one and three quarters percent to finish the day at 11,856. New federal securities filings show Cambridge-based Biogen has cut 885 jobs 
Since it announced a cost-cutting plan last year, the Boston Business Journal reports about 470 of those cuts were in the Bay State. Biogen started tightening its budget after the release of its controversial Alzheimer's disease drug, Aduhelm. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, with seven showrooms and design centers surrounding Boston and a new location in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. When we talk about armoring campuses against mass shootings, we may be ignoring an uncomfortable truth. There was research the FBI did many years ago about targeted school shootings. Only about 10% were by people that had no connection to the institution. What do you do when the school shooting threat comes from within the school community? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Could be drizzly tonight, not too chilly, about 48 again. Tomorrow, the work week comes to a rainy end. Showers and light rain, some strong winds. Temperatures may not set a record, but they'll still be mild. Could reach the upper 50s. The weekend's looking brighter brighter and chillier should be in the 40s, Saturday and Sunday. 55 degrees now in Boston at 621. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. In the days since a Chinese spy balloon and three unidentified aerial objects were shot down by U.S. fighter jets, there have been a lot of questions. Today, President Biden made his first extensive comments on this unusual chapter in White House history. He said he has no regrets about shooting down the Chinese spy balloon at the beginning of the month. But as far as the other objects go, he said better rules are needed to regulate when things go up and when the military should shoot them down. NPR politics reporter Deepa Shivaram was watching the president's remarks and joins us now. Hey, Deepa. Hey, Alsa. Okay, so what goes up doesn't necessarily come down, I guess. <laughs> what else did we hear from the president today? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have been waiting to hear directly from the president about those three unidentified objects. You'll remember that were shot down on Friday, then one Saturday, and then another one on Sunday. And the thing is, we still don't have a lot of information. Biden said that they still don't know what exactly those objects are. But right now, nothing suggests that they're part of China's spy balloon program like that first balloon that was found and shot down earlier this month. Biden said that these three objects were most likely tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions that are studying weather or conducting other kinds of scientific research. And because there are all kinds of objects floating around at high altitudes for these purposes, Biden said he's directed his team to recommend, quote, sharper rules for how to handle these unidentified objects, essentially in order to differentiate between the ones that pose a threat and ones that are basically weather balloons. Going forward, these parameters will guide what actions we'll take while responding to unmanned and unidentified aerial objects. We're going to keep adapting them as the challenges evolve, if it evolves. Well, did President Biden give any indication of what those parameters, those rules will look like? 
Yeah, he said those new guidelines would remain classified and he would share them with Congress when they're completed. So we won't know exactly what those new rules are, but we do know that Biden's team will establish an inventory of sorts for how many objects are actually up there, who's allowed to launch them, and on the international level, working to create some kind of global norm on what we can fly in this airspace to begin with. Well, I do want to ask because, you know, the U.S. shot down those three unidentified objects a lot more quickly than it shot down the Chinese spy balloon, which was the thing that started all of this. And there's been criticism from Republicans that the president took too long to act on that first incident. Did Biden respond to any of that? He did, and he defended his decision to wait until the spy balloon wasn't going to harm any civilians once it was shot down. And he also said that the government protected any sensitive sites that the balloon was going to fly over before they shot it down. And Biden said shooting it down sent a clear message that violating U.S. sovereignty is unacceptable. In the meantime, Biden also said that he sanctioned six firms involved in China's balloon program, and those restrictions mean that they're denied access to any U.S. technology. Okay, so Biden says the U.S. sent a clear message to China, but we know that China has called shooting down the balloon an overreaction, right? So how concerned is the president about this increased tension with China because of all this? Yeah, Biden said this whole incident has underscored the importance of open lines of communication between officials in the U.S. and China. And he did say he expects to be speaking with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He didn't say exactly when that would be, though. But Biden and Vice President Harris have both recently said that they don't think this incident has hurt relations with China. And Biden echoed that today. He said he's not looking for any conflict with China, but he makes no apologies for shooting down the spy balloon. In the last two weeks, though, i got to tell you, there hasn't been a lot of communication between top U.S. and Chinese officials. So that open line that Biden wants hasn't really come to fruition. That is NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Thank you so much, Deepa. Thank you. The final season of Star Trek Picard on Paramount Plus features a landmark reunion. It unites key characters from the 1980s-era series Star Trek The Next Generation. NPR TV critic Eric Degen says tapping deeper into the show's legacy brings excellent results. Star Trek Picard tells you right away that a big part of its story in the third season will show you new sides to old characters. By taking Dr. Beverly Crusher, the caring ship's doctor from Star Trek The Next Generation series, and putting her in a gunfight. Okay, Trek nerds, it's technically a phaser fight. And after taking a serious wound, Crusher sends a message to the only person she can trust, her former captain, Jean-Luc Picard, played by Patrick Stewart. I'm encoding this transmission with coordinates. Beverly. And Jean-Luc, no Starfleet. Trust no one. Turns out Dr. Crusher, played by Gates McFadden, is fleeing a big bad villain that will force Picard to reunite much of his old crew from the Next Generation series. That's something Trek fans have been pining for since Paramount Plus first debuted this series based on Stewart's character three years ago. But even in the first few minutes of the first episode, Picard himself declares his history doesn't matter. I am not a man who needs a legacy. I want a new adventure. What Picard gets is a new adventure rooted in his legacy. The series does a masterful job reintroducing us to these beloved characters, with more than 20 years since some of them have seen each other. 
Picard is particularly angry with Dr. Crusher, who cut off contact after ending their romance, assuming he was too addicted to space adventure to settle down. I didn't know I would never see you again, that I would wonder for years what it was that I had done. <laughs> Jean-Luc, don't tell me you would have walked away. Beverly, you made the choice for me. You don't get to condemn people before the fact. Those who've watched the first two seasons of Picard know this is a constant theme. Picard as a lion in winter, struggling to save the galaxy while facing the consequences of his life's decisions. But those previous seasons didn't fully feature the next generation characters that Picard served with over seven seasons of television and four films. So it never really felt like he faced the most important parts of his past until now. Eventually, Picard turns to his trusty former second-in-command, William Riker, played by Jonathan Frakes, and their chemistry is wonderful, leavened a little bit by advancing age, as Riker asks about Picard's trembling hands when they're about to charge onto a strange ship, phasers at the ready. From fear or the thought of seeing Beverly? Both. Terrific. Your hands are stiff. My knees are killing me. So long as we don't have to move or shoot, we should be fine. Ready? As ever. Paramount Plus debuted the first of its new Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, in 2017, when the streamer was called CBS All Access. At first, Picard and Discovery worked hard to develop their own voices and characters. But the success of last year's Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which modernized the Adventure of the Week vibe from the original Star Trek in the 1960s, proves that it's time for these programs to lean into their legacy. Star Trek Picard does exactly that, weaving an exciting new adventure for characters fans have loved for decades. I'm Eric Deggins. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports tonight, the Bruins close out a quick two-game road trip with a game in Nashville. The puck drops at 8 o'clock. Joe Mazzula is now officially the head coach of the Boston Celtics, according to the team today. Mazzula has been interim coach since the start of the season, after the Celtics parted ways with former coach Ime Odoka. Celts have the best record in the league under Mazzula. He becomes the 19th head coach in Celtics franchise history. And if you're longing for baseball, the Red Sox say they'll put single-game tickets on sale a week from today. They'll be for games from mid-June to almost the end of July. 56 degrees now. Look for drizzle tonight. Lows about 48 degrees. Tomorrow, cloudy and damp. Highs of 58. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org.